It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. It's episode 590, where Craig Hewitt and I answer listener questions. We cover topics ranging from building versus buying internal tools, how to compete in a competitive space, accounting software, a founder who has a zombie company where investors want their money back, and I think there's at least two or three more. If you recall, Craig Hewitt was the subject of the first season of Tiny Seed Tales. He's the founder of Castos, which is podcast hosting, both public and private, as well as podcast production services. Craig Hewitt also co-hosts a couple podcasts, one called Rogue Startups, and the other is Seeking Scale. Craig is a wealth of knowledge. He runs a very successful SaaS company, and he has a great take on, on all the questions that we talk about today. Before we dive into that, I want to let you know that MicroConf Mastermind Matching is happening again. We do it a few times a year. I don't know, I think it's about every three to six months. And if you're not familiar, I've been espousing the benefit of startup masterminds for almost a decade on this podcast. I've personally relied on masterminds to sanity check decisions, help myself with accountability, and frankly, just maintaining motivation and having other founders invested and interested in what I'm doing has been an invaluable part of my journey. And you know, we now have over 600 successful matches under our belt at MicroConf from over 50 countries across 20 time zones with a collective ARR of north of $150 million. There is a small one-time fee to be matched with your mastermind, and that's uh, you know all visible on microconfmasterminds.com. That's where you would also go if you wanted to start your application. It takes, what, I think five to seven minutes. You give a few pieces of information like location, experience level, your goals, your skill sets, some business metrics, and producer Xander and the crack team at MicroConf matches you up with other folks. And again, we have hundreds and hundreds of successful matches, hundreds of masterminds that are currently operating and, and providing value to founders. So if you're not in a mastermind, and I, I think you should be, you should head to microconfmasterminds.com. And with that, let's dive into answering listener questions with Craig Hewitt. Craig Hewitt, thanks for joining me back on the show. Hey, thanks, Rob. It's always great to have you, man. You said you've been on the show three times. I think you've been on more. I think, it, yeah, four, maybe five. Yeah. yeah. It's been a hot minute, though. It mixes with Tiny Seed Tales. Right, yeah. Right? Where we did 10 episodes or something across that year. Have you gone back? So you were season one of Tiny Seed Tales, folks. Have you gone back and listened to that? Because I haven't. In a while. No, I haven't gone back and listened to it, but I was, I think about a few of those recordings like a lot. Like yeah. we had some really great times and some really horrible times and I, I, I'm scarred. I think yeah. I definitely <laughs> go back and say, I cannot believe that happened for sure. But it was really cool to capture it in the moment. Cause now like, it's like having kids, right? Like you forget about changing diapers at two in the morning and it all seems like roses. So it's really good to grab it in the moment. Right. I would agree. And there was one recording you made at 11 o'clock at night, you're just like, I feel so terrible. Like you did the whole <laughs> reality TV thing where they go in the booth and you sent me that recording. And that's one of the, that's a really good episode. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we're, I'm working on uh, season three right now. Awesome. Well, sir, let's dive into some listener questions today. These are some of my favorite episodes where we get to hear from listeners who write into questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Sometimes they just send a text question like Devin Tracy did, uh, which I'll read in a second, or sometimes they go to the website and they can send a video or an audio question using the link at the top, ask us a question. So the subject of this one is non-technical founder. 
And he says, hey, Rob, I am a non-technical founder. I have an idea for a business slash software that I'm interested in pursuing. As a non-technical founder with a day job as a high school math teacher and a decent amount of marketing background, selling products, memberships, et cetera, through Facebook and Google ads. And I have an idea, how do I go about finding programmers to help me build this? Notice, I know you've answered the questions about vetting partners and hiring good talent on the show. My question is even more fundamental than that. Quite literally, how do I find people to talk to about this? Short of going on Fiverr, which doesn't seem like the best option. Yeah, that's not the best option. I have no idea about how to go about it. Thanks for any insights you have. Greg Hewitt. Coincidentally or not, you are also a non-developer founder. What, what do you think of Devin's question? Yeah, I mean, so like I'm just smiling hearing hearing this question because like, so we're about five years into Castos at this point, and I am a solo non-technical founder and so can totally relate to this situation. And I'll just say like for background, I got really lucky on our first developer. Jonathan Bossinger was with us for four years. It was just amazing, like really good to work with, helped me kind of level up my skills as a founder working with technical team for the first time, because it is super, super hard. Like for people who haven't built software before to work with a developer cold out of the box is just super hard. And so my advice would be to find a technical co-founder. I will never, ever, ever do this again by myself because like we're just at the point now with 14 people to where I feel like it's like I don't want to say tolerable, but like that the risk of me not being technical is is okay right now. But before it was just silly how like I had no idea what I was doing and we we got by like with a lot of help and with a lot of, of really good early people. But but I think like they're asking like how do you make sure you get those good people? And it's so hard. And then the, the risk of if you get the wrong developer, you're you're just sunk, you know, and you're gonna spend a whole bunch of time and money and, and you know knock it off the ground. And so like I think you need somebody with skin in the game further on like that, unless you had a bunch of money or were really sure in your kind of like your hypothesis for product market fit and your marketing abilities to where you'd think you'd get off the ground really quick, like if you have a big audience or something, then you probably could swing it. But but if you don't have those few things, I, I would find a technical co-founder. Yeah, there is a reason that I think it's a low two-digit percentage of bootstrap SaaS founders don't have at least one technical co-founder. And I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take these off the top of my head, but it's ballpark. I think it's somewhere around 15% of tiny seed companies don't have a technical co-founder like yourself. Somewhere in that 10 to 20, but I think it's about 15. And then I think in the broader kind of indie SaaS space, we do the state of independent SaaS with MicroConf. The number is a little higher. I think it's tw maybe 20% or maybe just north of 20. It's a vast minority because of just what you've said of SaaS is really complicated. <laughs> Building info products and courses and, and all of that takes some expertise, it takes some time in front of a microphone or writing or audio or whatever, and those are skills under themselves. SaaS is like a moving jet engine that you're, you know, as Reid Hoffman says, like you're, you're assembling it on the way down as it's crashing, right, to try to keep it from, from going. It's very complicated and it's constantly moving. Yeah. And just to like peel back what you're saying, like the needs of your technical team change over time, right? And that like, that's the really hard thing is like you could find a good developer for an MVP, but they're probably not the person that's going to help you like scale and stabilize your AWS setup. And so that's where like a person that 100% you trust and you know has your back no matter what is, is just super important. Yeah. Because you don't even know. Like you don't know what you don't know. That's right. So I guess when I think about it, I think, okay, so you could, if, if you had buckets of money, you could hire 
a really good, you could try to hire and find an expensive, really good developer in your own country. And that is possible. And you can get, I would, if I were to go about that, I would get referrals. I would go to TopTal. I would, you know, there are certain sites that are just higher priced. It's not Fiverr. It's, it's places like that. And one way to get to the point where you have those buckets of money is to stair step your way up. If you're non-technical, it is to start with those simple products, whether they're info or courses, you know, building a Shopify app, having that built or a WordPress plugin, it is simpler than SaaS and the technical debt is less and you're not self-hosting it. So you don't have to worry about all the DevOps stuff. You know, again, you don't know what you don't know, but there's a reason that I've espoused the stair-step approach for years and years. It's for both technical and non-technical people is that then you learn 60% of what you know, 70% of what you need to know in order to run a SaaS. And if you're successful, you get some revenue out of it. So now you take that revenue and you parlay that into either hiring hire your co-founder or or at least when you approach a technical person and say, I want you to work nights and weekends while you have a day job as a developer at you know, Fortune 1000 company, they get these offers all the time. And so they're going to say, well, why should I do this for you? And you can say, well, I have this money that I can pay you. Or look, I've already built this successful product and I have an audience and I want to sell it to the same one. Or I've validated it. I've pre-sold it. I have an MVP. You know, there's all these things like coming to a developer and asking him to be your co-founder for free. It may be even more challenging than trying to hire one because developers just get this pitch all the time, right? Of If you're a good developer, you do. Every few months, a relative, a someone says this. And so that's the challenge. Uh, I would say the if you were hell-bent on going this way and wanted to do it right now, like some kind of community like MicroConf Connect or, or whatever, because there are those people searching for their next thing in there too. And you just have to, it's the right time fit a lot of times. It's the right person at the right time in their career, changing career paths that you might say, hey, yeah, I got, you know, six months of runway, I can go do this and, and let's give it a whirl. But but that's a big risk for them. So you just got to understand that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we make the analogy often of finding a co-founder is like finding a, you know, a spouse, like a, a life partner in that you're probably going to have to date several and it's not going to work out. And that's the hard part is, okay, so you start this SaaS app and someone starts writing the code and then it doesn't work out. And it's like, well, now you have this code base, you have this legacy that may be even more concrete and heavy than the emotional baggage of, uh, of dating. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> all right. So Devin, it's a great question. And obviously it's not all sunshine and roses. I wish I could tell you, you know, there was a magical thing. I mean, I've hired good devs on Upwork. I've hired terrible devs on Upwork. I've hired good devs from Elance back in the day. And I've heard folks hiring through TopTal. I mean, there are agencies. Again, if, if you have budget, there are agencies that can build a good product. But boy, to build us, to pay them to build a SaaS app when you, maybe you, you know, I don't know if you have product market fit, if you, certainly you don't have it, but if how far along your confidence level is that this actually is a good idea and you want to drop thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on it, it gets tough. And then what do you do? You launch, you get a couple thousand in MRR, best case. Now who maintains that? you know, because agencies are expensive. So I'll stop talking there. Thanks again for the question, Devin. Let's move on to our next one. This question is from Prabhat, and he says, looking for advice for a poor startup founder. I'm a new founder from a beautiful but poor country, Nepal. I believe software has no borders, and all it needs is a good idea to be a global idea. Hence, I've been trying learning for the past nine months. I have a question. I have a SaaS idea, but I lack funding as my country's startup ecosystem is not very advanced. So I've started to do some client projects, which allow me to invest in my idea. But sometimes I find it very hard to manage between client projects versus my in-house idea of my SaaS idea. 
clients sometimes come up with very hard deadlines, which happens quite often, and that gives us no time to manage our own in-house SaaS ideas. What do you think would be a wise way to manage between these two pulling forces? I don't want to be dependent on client projects to sustain my startup. Every week, listener... Prabot. What do you think, Craig Hewitt? Have you ever been in that? You ever been in that boat where it's kind of nights and weekends-ish and, and there are competing priorities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think all of us come from this type of scenario some, right? Day job and wanting to start something up on the side or doing consulting or client work and starting something up on the side. And for me, there's there's a couple of paths. If you're quite sure that your idea is, is good and or you have like an MVP, then joining a, an accelerator program and getting money is a good way to go. I will say, in all fairness, like the amount of money that you get from Tiny Seed, like, is often like not enough to get you from like zero to one if you're by yourself. And so, like, and I know that's not the the model that the Tiny Seed is going after these days. But I would just say, like, try. And this probably leads into my second part: is like try to make it work with nights and weekends, and like maybe work four days on client projects and and Fridays on your own thing or something, and be be pretty regimented about that. I know someone who owns like a consultancy and owns a bunch of products, they actually bill the products back through the consultancy to, to make like all of this work right from a accountability and accounting standpoint. And so like, I would, I would maybe try to do both, right. Is, is like really be diligent about setting aside a day or a half a day, a couple times a week to your product and, and pay the bills with client work, raising prices on the client work obviously makes that a lot easier. So if you can raise prices by 20%, then you don't lose any of your revenue and, Generally, I think there's almost always room for that as a consultant. And then once you get a product and have some degree of product market fit, then things like Tiny Seed make a lot of sense to really just accelerate your ability to stop doing client work and go full time on this more so. That's probably what I would do. I think that's a really good suggestion. There is no easy answer here. There is no silver bullet or magic pill that you're going to take that's going to help you. I've heard a lot of agencies, and in fact, I was a micro agency myself as I was doing these products. And I also had to say, I can bill. $150 for the next 60 minutes, or I can go work on this product that is making me almost no money right now. And I had to make that decision every day. And that $150 went to my bottom line and my family's bottom line. And I really struggled with it emotionally and almost like ethically is not the right word, but like morally, am I like doing the best for my family? If I'm taking two hours a day, $300 a day, that's $1,500 a week. That's six more than six grand a month that I could have been billing because I was always booked full time. I just had a, a good funnel and I had to wrestle with that, which is the same thing that that you're asking about. How do I reconcile that? Especially with things that aren't, they're not a sure thing. And that's the hard part. So I really like Craig's idea of d- being disciplined about it and either carving out one day a week or it sounds like you have a small team. You, you fork one developer off and they are, they're, they're doing the Skunk Works project and you never pull them into client projects anymore. You know, I don't know how big your team is, but at a certain point, you, I've heard some of some agencies that take 10% of their entire team and it's like all you're doing is build focused on this one idea. I would be careful. I think Prabhat may have mentioned that it was like in-house products or projects and I, wouldn't, I would focus on one with your already limited time. And then I think a big thing is, are you building or are you validating? Because if you haven't validated, you shouldn't be building at all. Just because you can write code doesn't mean you should be writing code, right? The, the biggest risk is not whether you can build this product. The biggest risk is that no one will care and that you won't be able to market it. So that's the very first thing I would be figuring out is what are my channels? Where am I going to get customers from? And then start building those and talking to those potential customers to find out, do they actually need this? Do they actually need this thing we're building or are we, are we wasting our time? Very much a customer development mentality. There's a book, very popular book called The Mom Test that talks a lot about this is people tell you what 
they think you want to hear, right? And and they're dishonest, not in a, in a malicious way, but but they don't want to be jerks. And so like, I think when doing customer validation, especially these days, I think it's super hard without a product. And so like, maybe pick that book up and read through it so that you can make sure you're getting honest and objective feedback on your idea before you build something. I've seen a lot of friends and, and kind of colleagues in the space validate something they thought, and then go build it. And then it doesn't work out. And that's a bummer just in terms of opportunity cost and real cost and, and everything. So I would definitely be careful about how you approach that. And here's an advantage you have, Prabhat. You live in a country with a very low cost of living. I'm guessing the wages are low compared to what you might be able to charge for. If you're going to market to the U.S. market, you're going to have a lot more revenue than you will have cost. We have some folks, tiny seed applicants or folks at MicroConf who I talked to, and they'll apply and they'll be at 10K MRR and they'll have a team of eight working on it. You know, and I'm like, how are you bleeding money? And they're like, no, we're at break even. Well, how are you at break even? It's like, well, we are in India and it's just very inexpensive. Like I can hire developers for pennies on the dollar compared to what would be in the US. So you have that advantage of your cost basis is low. Another thing is if you are able to do agency work, do your consulting work for international clients in Europe, in the US, you can bill obviously bill more. I mean, that's the internationalization of all this, the kind of the globalization I think has can provide you with some pretty incredible opportunity. And that's the advantage you have. It's the advantage we kind of had being in Fresno, California and bootstrapping, not to the extent that, you know, that you are in Nepal, but like to hire a developer was about a third of the cost of the Bay Area, which was three hour drive away. And that was a reason I didn't live in the Bay Area is I didn't want to deal with those costs as a bootstrapper. So think about that as your, you know, potentially your superpower. Thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. Our next question asker would like to remain anonymous. He says, I have a zombie company and investors want their money back. He says, hey, Rob, I've been a longtime listener to the show and your approach and ethos have always resonated with me. Your podcast subjects have an uncanny knack of being timed perfectly with whatever stage of the startup journey I happen to be up to. So thanks. My question is essentially about whether I should be prioritizing getting investors, their initial investment back to them or continue to grow my company for the benefit of the co-founders, but probably not the investors, at least for a number of years. I will say this is a longer email, so bear with me. He says, to keep the story as brief as I can, my company raised two rounds of capital, 2017 and 2018, from a mix of venture, high net worth individuals, and a couple friends and family. The total amount raised over both rounds was in the low hundred thousands. So it's not a huge sum overall, but let's say the friends and family would love to have their chunk of change returned as soon as possible. And I'm going to break in here. So it's it's the first two months of 2022. So let's just say it's the end of 2021 for, you know, date's sake. This is a three to four-year-old investment. If people want their money back, that's a problem because startups don't return money that quickly. So I will couch that and, and resume the email. My business had a rather inflated valuation for the second round, so those friends and family got a pretty rough deal. Then in 2020, the business took a dramatic change in direction, and he basically lost his co-founder. Now he's running it solo. He says, although we're finally breaking even and seeing good growth, ultimately the company is and will remain a lifestyle business for the next few years. Not so much the venture or the high net worth investors, but the friends and family seem to be getting impatient realizing they didn't invest in the next rocket ship, they're questioning when they can get their money out. If we sold the business now and there is no guarantee we could sell, investors might get 75% of their money back, but the ordinary shareholders, meaning the co-founders, would likely get nothing. So breaking in here, there must be a, 
I guess there's a 1x liquidation preference. If the business continues to grow for, say, another five years, it's likely the co-founders would get something back after a sale, and investors are more likely to get all their money back, but realistically not much more. In other words, investors' money would be stuck in the company, not doing a great deal for them for five or more years, but co-founders would benefit from the extended period of growth. Should I feel guilty for building the business essentially for my own employment and future gains of the co-founder? Or should my priorities be to maximize the returns to investors no matter what, and therefore sell the company now, given that they are unlikely to see much additional return for a number of years? Craig Hewitt, what a predicament. What do you think? Yeah, this is a really hard one. Uh, so we have raised money, kind of two different rounds, like just under a million dollars total. And I will say personally, and this is a really personal thing, I feel an enormous obligation to return money to our investors. It is probably the thing that drives me most <laughs> most days. Like the business is for me, but also like a, a chunk of the business is not for me anymore, right? It's for our investors. And that's the decision that I made, geez, Rob, three years ago, three and a half years ago when we joined Tiny Seed. And, and, and so I think that for folks who haven't brought on investors, that's definitely something I say is like when you have an investor, like it's not just your business anymore. And so you you have a responsibility to them. And this is going into answering the question is I would say that you need to do a little bit of both here, right? You, you definitely have a responsibility to make a return for your investors, if at all possible. If they're not going to get their money back right now, then right now is not the time to sell. And so I would ask them to just be patient and, and just explain this exactly to them. Hey, if we sold the business right now, you'd get 75 cents on the dollar back. I think that's a pretty bummer deal. And, and if you're kind of hellbent on that, then maybe we can kind of work something out to where you could start paying it back over time or something. If they're just at break even, that, that would be tough. They don't you know have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank to just pay them back with. So that's tough. I probably would not try to just like sell the business now and and liquidate to give people like an impartial return. And just try to, to to frame it with, hey, this is where we are. This is what has happened with the co-founder and kind of the setbacks we've had in the business. This is what I see as our trajectory over the next couple of years. And in two, three, four years, this is what I'm hoping to see. But but then like there's this term of like lifestyle business in there. And like for me, and like some people that listen to this podcast might not like this, is like to me, lifestyle business and investors do not go together. Because when you take investors, you're signing up for like, hardball, you know, and like really trying to really trying to build a great business that is really high value in, in the market. And when you create a lifestyle business, you're creating the business for you so you can make a bunch of money and not work a lot to me, which there's nothing wrong with either of those. But but the two can't go together like to their fullest extent. And so I would say that like they probably need to get serious about growing the business and make that return for their investors. That might not be the answer they want to hear, though. Yeah, I don't know that I disagree with anything you've said. I think that this is the trouble with friends and family money. And there's this phrase, it's a you know pejorative term, but they say there's smart money and there's dumb money. And usually dumb money is it's friends and family who don't understand startups, or it's maybe the dentist or the doctor down the street who wants to write a $25,000 check and then feels like they need to give you a bunch of business advice about your startup. That's not what you want. You wanted business advice from the smart people, the venture capitalists, potentially high net worth individuals if they were entrepreneurs. You want the advice from them. So I guess as a cautionary tale, like it's not going to help the asker here, but as a cautionary tale, if you're going to take money from friends and family, I would not only sit down with them, but I would like put it in writing as well in an email, like, please realize that this is more than likely to go to zero than do anything else. It is also, if it's going to do anything else, it's going to take me seven to 10 years. 
that's typical liquidity for venture-backed startups. And I'm just going to throw that number out. Now, that's for bootstrappers, that's actually quite a long time for someone to run a company, but I, I would just set the expectation. It's really far out. And the go to zero part, it, what, what's so interesting is the venture capitalists and the high net worth individuals are like, yeah, whatever, because A, they probably already knew that. They did not expect money out of a startup in three years. And B, they have a portfolio of investments. I, how much you want to bet they don't have one startup investment, they have 10 or 50 or 100, and you're one of many. Friends and family, again, the, the trouble with it is exactly that, is if they write you a check and it's a chunk of their net worth, everything's writing on that. And if it doesn't win, they, you know, they lose a lot of money versus if they had a portfolio of 10 or 20, which realistically is, is the typical, if you're going to get into angel investing, the typical advice is, you know, make a lot of small bets. If you have $25,000 to invest in startups and you're accredited, make $25,000 bets or $10,000, $2,500 bets because you just don't know which of these is going to hit. And maybe applicable to this, but, but just curious, like for me, the return expectation for an early stage angel investor to me is like double their money. And so like to me, I'm just reading between the lines here, like, yeah, not this is maybe not a unicorn business, which is totally cool. We're, we're not either, but we're hoping to like double our investors' money. And I think that that's a fair expectation for folks maybe who are earlier on in the process of just talking to to angels like that that's what they should expect in in a good outcome so angels who are used to venture investing they want it to go to zero or 100x usually there are certainly more angels like a lot of the tiny seed lps who would say oh a 5x or a 10x return is good because there's a lot of downside protection in SaaS because the value usually doesn't go to zero if you build anything of any revenue these days, right? You can sell it. I don't know of angel investors who would be happy with a 2x return, but I can, like, usually in my head, it's like three to five is kind of the, the more sure bet, the more sure thing. But also, this is all, it's a lot of individuals. You and I are like generalizing across a bunch of people, and some people are fine with a really not risky bet because betting on a SaaS company once they're north of a million bucks and have a pretty consistent growth rate, there are not many bets I know that are as sure in the space. Like certainly buying individual stocks is not, you know, I don't think as as, as a predictable as a return. So the downside protection is is really strong. So anyways, question asker, I think Craig's advice is probably correct. If I were in your shoes, if I was still interested in the business, I would continue to run the business. I would focus on growth. I would focus on getting investor returns, but also focus on getting me a return for the for the years that you put into this business, to walk away from it now and walk away with nothing because some people want money. And I get it. Friends and family can be a pain in the ass and they can ruin your Thanksgiving. And, you know, that some people don't take friends and family money because of it. But the right decision, like the non-emotional decision is to keep going and hopefully provide them with a return and, and you as well. But definitely feel your pain. It sucks to be in the predicament. Next question is actually from Twitter. I had posted a few weeks ago about topics for Cortland Allen and I to discuss, and there were 30-something topics, and we covered like four of them. So I just pulled this one down because I feel like it's a, it's a quick one. It's, do you guys have any resource recommendations for accounting software for founders? It's a boring topic, but it's essential when you do actually start making money. What do you think? So we've used Bench for a long time, all the way back to the podcast motor days, and it's really great. And I think that we are just getting to the point where we might need something more at this point. And that's a whole other topic. And I don't have a recommendation for whatever the next step is after Bench, just to get a little more kind of sophisticated and fine, fine-tuned or fine-detailed uh, accounting. But it is accounting software and a service in one. It's about 150 bucks a month. And I think it's great until you get to, say, a million bucks. I think it does everything you want it to do. And for me, I use Zero, which is X-E-R-O. I believe they're an Australian company, and they kind of 
basically went after QuickBooks Online and they said, we're the not QuickBooks Online. We are the not crappy version of that. And they import from all the credit cards and all the the Stripes and PayPals and all that. And then I have an accountant slash bookkeeper who monthly logs in and does the reconciling. I could obviously pay. Zero has, I don't know if they have, like Bench has it built in where they have people on staff. And I don't know if Zero does or if you just go to their page with a bunch of, you know, freelancers and hire people. But if you're just looking for software, I think either of those is, is a great, great resource. Next question. How do you build in a competitive market as a solo founder? Example, community platforms, social media tools, and he didn't say it, podcast hosting. I'm throwing it in there. <laughs> Thanks, you, Rob. <laughs> I picked this one out just for you. How do you build the competitive market, sir? Yeah, I think the, the the couple things that I would really keep in mind are, first of all, have something that's different. For us, it was our integration with WordPress early on. Now it's kind of how we think about it and how we integrate with other tools around private podcasting. Those are the two things we kind of hang our hat on. And so you can easily say, we're podcast hosting for people that do X or Y or want Z. And, and that's just really easy because then you can be really opinionated on your marketing copy on your website and where you stand in the market and how you talk to potential customers. That's the easiest. Not knowing kind of where the question asker is coming from, I think the other one that's really powerful is like early on, especially the founder having a really strong brand. I think that scales to a point and then doesn't anymore. And it is it is a really nice advantage to have early on. Like I, I think I had a personal brand when we started and that helped. There are certainly people that have bigger ones and like that, that just helps you get off the ground. But I think just being as opinionated as you can and your positioning and stance and messaging and everything is, is the easiest way to stand out. Yeah. You've touched on one of the four advantages for faster SaaS growth that I named in this talk that I did four or five years ago, but it was having an audience, having a network, being early to a space which once there's all com- well, this competition, you know, does, it, that one doesn't apply. And then having a, like owning a unique traffic channel. And I think any of those can help you in a competitive space. I liked your mention of private podcasting because that's essentially a unique position that you're taking. You're being opinionated in your copy and you're positioning Castos as different than all the other players. You're carving out this corner of if you want public and private podcasting, you come here. And so I think I, I, I've harped on this a lot with, uh, with Mike, Mike Tabor, when he comes back on the show of like, what do you have that's unique in your startup? You either need unique positioning or you need to own a traffic channel. Like, you know, I've seen entire businesses built on buying a WordPress plugin and owning that traffic channel or being really good at SEO. We see Signwell doing quite well, but he's competing against DocuSign and all these other e-signature things. And he, he does have some unique positioning. This is Ruben Gomez, the founder. He's been on the show many times. He has some unique positioning, but really without that owning of that traffic channel. I used to call it a proprietary traffic channel, but that's not, not really what it is. It's just, I, I'm really good at this or I own, like I said, an add-on you know, for an ecosystem and I rank for this traffic. The one other thing, so there's unique positioning we've touched on, audience, network, and owning a traffic channel. The one other thing that can help you, and I don't know if on its own if it's enough, but it's having a big incumbent that is hated. Having a QuickBooks for zero to go against. Having an Infusionsoft for Drip to go against. Having... Oh, having, having Libsyn for Castos to go against. Yeah. Yes, right? Where people like, ah, I use this thing, and they're then coming, it's such a pain in the ass, and it's like, well, we are not that. We are literally not, we are that that doesn't suck, right? That's kind of your headline. I've, I hear this with, like, I think Intercom, Intercom is a, is a good product and offers all kinds of stuff, but, you know, what they've done with their pricing, they've gone so far up market that 
I'm still shocked that no one has come in underneath them. And I, I hear people complaining about intercom. And yet, where is that? Where's that upstart, you know, who's going to come in and take out the, I'll say the, not the bottom end of the market, because that sounds like you're bottom feeding, but it's just, I, I do think there's room in these spaces where folks, the money's in the enterprise and they just keep going up, 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 and it leaves room for you to sneak in as a startup founder. Okay, just two things to, to piggyback there. One, I think UserList has a really good chance of capitalizing on Intercom's move up market. They're a great tool and, and adding a lot of really cool features that are addressing the needs that people who would use Intercom have. So I think that that's one to watch out for. I agree. I think I think it's an enormous opportunity. And a recommendation for resource on positioning is a podcast called Everyone Hates Marketers. Louis there is a friend and a customer of ours, uh, someone I've known for a few years, but just really strongly positioned himself and talks about this a lot and is just a really good resource for folks who want to say like, how do I stand out in this market? And he definitely does and can. I've been on that show. I was on it a few years ago. Yeah, that was cool. Last question for today. When do you buy versus build tools that you use in your business? I'm thinking this one is a softball, but let's I think we're both going to agree. When do you folks at Castos build versus buy tools? We almost never build. It's just like, do the math on it. Josh Pigford had a great blog post about this from Barometrics. It just almost never makes sense to build it in-house unless it is really integral to like the day-to-day customer experience of your application. I'm talking just SaaS specifically, but like what I wouldn't do is like take people off of my platform onto the Stripe hosted checkout page to check out or to cancel their subscription or something. Like I want that in-house. Like that's a really specific example, but basically anything else you use to run your business should integrate or zap your connect to to what you're doing and you shouldn't have to build any of it. Yep, that's pretty much it. Whenever I used to hear people say, well, we'll just build this in-house. We'll be talking to potential customers with whatever SaaS I happen to be part of or advising or whatever. It's like, they have no idea. Like developers think you can build all this. It's just a savvy cow. It's just this link. I'll build drip in a week. You know, and, and you think it's like, that's what we think. Yeah, until you get to the DevOps and the security and the spam and the, it's just, no, it's, it's endless. It's really hard building. Yeah, but Castos in a weekend, right? Well, I can just host some flat files on a server. Yeah, but then there's no CDN. Okay, so now I'm going to have a CDN. Okay, but now you don't have XYZ. It's like, it's just this endless thing. There's a reason that you have a team of 14 people working on a product that some developer somewhere thinks they can build in a weekend. And the same thing, if you want to get onboarding stuff to app queues type stuff into your SaaS at Drip, when we were going to do this, one of our developers said, well, why don't we just build it in house? And I'm like, because then we have to maintain that product. And then you have to make it so marketing and customer success can come in and update it. Do you want to build and manage a WYSIWYG editor? And then they report bugs and they go to you? Because I don't want to pull you off the core product that's making us millions of dollars to maintain this other thing that we can pay $200 a month, $500 a month. I mean, it's crazy cheap compared to your salary, you know? So I think as developers, as a recovering developer myself, I mean, it's like we do, we just think we can hack everything together. And it's usually not the right choice. Usually the right choice is building things that provide value to your end user. And it is cool that we, here's when we used to have to build everything was in 2005, 2007, you're building a SaaS app. There was no Zapier. There was no Stripe. There was no app queues. There was, you know, all this stuff we rely on today that is is great that we have this ecosystem. And I know it's expensive and I know we get, what is it, subscription fatigue, where you look at, you know, I'm sure you're like 10 grand a month in like $50 
a month apps. Why is my American Express bill four pages long? <laughs> exactly. And it's because of that. But you know what? If you didn't have that, you would need another developer or two to build and maintain crappier versions of all of that just for you. And we live in an amazing time, I think. I think that the, like, the next level topic with this is like leverage of your time, right? It is just paying AppQs $800 a month lets you not worry about it and focus on other things. And that's that kind of rotation you're talking about is not maintaining this thing, but letting you and your developers and your team and your support folks all focus on really important things that move the ball forward in a meaningful way, because it's worth way more than that $800 a month to, to those folks. Yes, indeed, sir. Thanks again for joining me on the show today. Good time. Thanks, Rob. If folks want to keep up with you, you are the Craig Hewitt on Twitter. And I'd like to recommend your audience podcast. I know Matt's doing a lot of the hosting there now, but audience is, is legit. If folks are into podcasting and want to hear about the creative process, uh, episode comes out every week. And I'd encourage you to go check that out. And of course, castos.com, but that almost goes without saying. Thanks again, Craig. Thanks, Rob. If you have not checked out Craig's podcasts, they are two shows that I listen to every week, Rogue Startups and Seeking Scale. I recommend you check them out. Thanks for joining me every week on the show. We are approaching episode 600, and I believe next month will be 12 years of startups for the rest of us. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning.